Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Cody Townsend is back on the show to review with me some of the major outdoors-related news of the past month. And before we get started, just a couple of things. First, for our gear giveaway this week, we are giving away a full kit from Strafe. So this includes a jacket and mid-layer and pants, and we will include a link to that giveaway in the show notes of this episode. So check that out, sign up, and win yourself a full kit. Now, another thing, for our upcoming Blister Summit that we'll be holding in Mount Crested Butte this coming February, we can tell you that Moment has confirmed that they will be at the summit. So if you've ever wanted to demo some Moment skis or if you want to check out Moment's latest offerings, well, then you should click on the link in the show notes to this episode where it says the Blister Summit sign up for the summit and you'll also get to see some of the other brands that have already confirmed that they will also be at the summit and speaking of coming to the summit in crested butte we have got this getting here article that goes deep into the details with just about everything you need to know if you are planning a trip to gunnison and crested butte this article also includes links to where you can find current flight information into gunnison and there are now quite a few more flight options than ever before. So, very conveniently, we have also included a link to this Getting Here guide in the show notes of this episode, so check that out as well. And yeah, pretty much you should probably just get in the habit of looking at the related links in all of our podcast episode notes, because there's a lot of good stuff and good information happening there. And now, let's go ahead and review some news here with Cody. Here we go. Well, Cody, it is October 30th, Saturday in the afternoon. And while we are giving short change here to, you know, the 31st of October, we are going to at least sort of go over the first 30 days of the news of October here. So um, that is our task. How are you today? That's an important question that we should we should get clear on because, you know, you got a few things going on now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm in Tahoe and home right now. And like, I think the biggest news of this past month uh, happens to be the birth of my child. So, uh, which he, uh, he decided to come a little early. We joke around. He came right before the first snowfall. So I don't think he wanted to miss the first storm of the season. And the, the, how are you doing is uh, I'm, I'm tired because that's what I learned with uh, raising an infant a newborn is like, is it's very exhausting. So uh, that's been the biggest news. Um, little son named Indiana, a.k.a. Indy, was born on uh, October 4th, right at the beginning of the month, and uh, been trying to survive ever since then, and mainly trying to support Elise the, the most, just trying to do as much as possible. Um, yeah. I was I was saying to I've said this to a few people. There's this kind of what I think is a little bullshit kind of myth that oh you guys can't do that much. It's like no, you can do quite a lot. The only thing you can't do is actually feed, um, but everything else around the house you can do. So 
you know, supporting Elise while she's waking up every two hours to feed him, um, which is wild to me that evolutionarily uh, humans evolved so that there's babies have to wake up every two hours, like torture their parents for the first like six months of their lives. Um, but uh, just trying to do as much as I, I can to support her. So cooking, cleaning, changing diapers, uh, swaddling, burping, doing everything I can. But uh, it's been it's been fun. Um, it's been, it's been really cool. I mean, as I've kind of saying, focusing on the exhaustion, but man, having a kid, it's, everyone says it's one of the most amazing things. And until you have it, I don't think you can understand it. And now that I have one, I understand it. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, that whole, like, it's amazing. It's really hard and it's amazing. And you probably just won't get it until you have a kid of your own this this all checks out now in your experience 100 like you you hear it so often like oh it's gonna be the hardest thing you do in your life but also the most amazing and you're like really like i don't know i've had some great alaskan heli ski trips <laughs> right. how is it gonna be better than that yeah. um but then you do you get these moments where he's like laying on your chest or he's in your lap and you're looking at your child and you're just like there's this like different style of love and connection and it's got to be a biological it's got to be something instinctual in us that you just like you're so drawn and connected to this little human in your lap and you're like oh uh, that's that love that i everyone talks about but now i finally feel and that is really really cool so um yeah i'm looking forward to to raising this little guy and mainly just trying to survive the first couple months and can i ask why indiana it was, you know, it's actually a name we came up with like 10, 12 years ago. And I don't know why we would just have these like baby name conversations because we weren't even married, but we pretty much knew it was going that way. And uh, we liked that both for either a boy or a girl. And we were like, I don't know, it's just kind of cool. And obviously it's got this adventurous spirit probably because of the movie, but it's also just kind of like it rolled off the tongue well. It felt like kind of a cool name. And then, you know, the nickname Indy felt like really cool and uh so i don't know we just stuck with it and uh you know we went through the baby name conversation we're like well let's just go with indiana like we liked a long time ago so uh so he's yeah little indy well congratulations to both of you Thank you've you. you've kept indy alive yep. since october 4th you two are still alive and pretty much that's my whole take on like when somebody has a baby it's like is everybody alive Yes. Like, I'm I'm not good at this, right? But so that's kind of my like amateur hour. I'm just like, is everybody alive? I'm so far so good. And then you you'll never know how obsessed you are with something eating and something pooping and something sleeping until you have a child. And yeah, you're just focused like, is he is he gaining weight? You're like, he's gaining weight. He's, you know, seven pounds, nine ounces now. That's amazing. And he's getting bigger. He's fitting into his clothes better. And you're just like, it's it's funny, all these little details. And there's these other little details you see, like where you can already tell he's like gaining a little bit of awareness, starting to make eye contact. And you're like so blown away. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's been the biggest news in October for me. Um, you know, got a, got a child. No going back now. I can't, I can't. <laughs> no, you're you're, you're in gonna, it. You yeah. said you dropped. I yeah. dropped in. There's no turning out of this line. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, hey, in slightly less important news than, you know, the birth of your child, I wanted to talk about the NFL for a second, really primarily because of one commenter. <laughs> Uh, now, we love, we really do. We love all of you that take, you know, 30 seconds to like 
give a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And many of you have said very nice things about these monthly conversations that Cody and I have. So we appreciate that. One commenter also wrote in recently to say how much he enjoyed these reviewing the news conversations. But he did also say, but please stop talking about the NFL. And so because I guess I'm a bit of a contrarian, I absolutely would like to dedicate this NFL segment to that person. You got to kind of know, like at a certain point, like tell us not to do something is a good way to guarantee that we do something. So anyway, let's talk about the fact that our respective teams are playing tomorrow. Yeah, it's it's like the the loser bowl. The like it's not yeah. even loser leaves town. It's just kind of no. like straight up like, hey, how sad can I be after already being sad this whole season? So so yeah, we're we're gonna do maybe a minute on on the NFL because of you know our two teams, the Bears and the 49ers playing each other and uh everyone going, Why is this all going sideways? Your your bears going, Why the hell do these coaches suck so bad and cannot coach someone as talented as field? and us Niners going, why the hell is Jimmy Garoppolo still playing when we have the future sitting on the bench? And everyone's just like, what is going on? This is, we're, we're terrible at football. This is just depressing. I, God, I get so connected to football. Like when we lost to the Colts last Sunday night, I was so bummed. I'm just like, we're awful. I was like, it was just watching three hours of being miserable and angry. So yeah, I don't know if you feel the same way about the Bears. First of all, we haven't been good in so long that I've I've kind of there's a level of acceptance that thank thankfully has come on because it used to just be I was like, why do I do this every Sunday? I know I'm going to get so angry like it's going to root my day will be ruined like and, and I've 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 developed a kind of acceptance that's kind of settled in here. And interestingly, I was actually back at a Bears game. I went back to Chicago to the Packers Bears game a couple weeks ago. And I got to say, like the Bears lost. We we knew this was going to happen. I didn't care at all. I honestly didn't care at all. It was the most beautiful fall day in Chicago. And we had amazing seats. Shout out and thank you to my friend Steve Buss. And it just was beautiful. And I got to see, you know how I feel about Aaron Rodgers. I got to see Aaron Rodgers live up close and in person, him doing his thing. And honestly, I just, I didn't even care at all that we didn't win the game. It was just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. And I was like, you know what? We have those beautiful days sometimes on mountaintops. And today was in a stadium on a gorgeous day back in Chicago. And uh, I got nothing to complain about. Yeah, what what you're speaking of is like exactly just setting low expectations in life (laughs) just is the best way to live. Because... We at the 49ers went to the Super Bowl two years ago, narrowly lost to the Chiefs. So we have a lot of hope. We have a lot of high expectations. And when those get crushed, it's way, way worse than just setting low expectations like, hey, it's a nice day. I'm going to enjoy this day and not let football ruin it. So, so yeah, that's a good life lesson. Low expectations may equal a lot more happiness in life. Well, and that ends this NFL segment. And I just want to give a shout out to NEJ74, who specifically said, please no more NFL talk. So we we hear you, 
Nedge, Nedge seven four. But um, sorry, not sorry. All right, what what else should we talk about today, Cody? Well, we can talk about some hope, which is good hope for winter because uh, I went skiing at the resort Palisades Tahoe yesterday, which uh, lift access skiing was it's pretty fun. It's uh, I mean, we're before Halloween. Um, and when we're skiing, I can't say the conditions were amazing. Uh, it's been pretty warm at night, which is not looking good for our snowpack right now. But uh, we had that huge dump, three feet of snow, snow up high, and they were able to open the mountain. So uh, more than anything, it felt good to slide on snow, um, see friends, see like just tons of people super stoked. And it just kind of reminds you of that like community aspect of skiing where you just like, I was hanging out at the top of the chair, just watching people get off and just so fired up to go make like five turns down a blue run. And you're like, this is this is cool. Such a great like energy around us. And it was, it was, it was cool to see. And I'm, I'm stoked for ski season again. How's it, how's it looking in Colorado? I mean, we've been getting some pretty regular snowfalls and a basin. There's already skiing happening there. Um, you know, here in Crested Butte, we like to build, we need to build. It's a lot of steep terrain here. So we got to, you know, we're, we're good. We're patient. So I have, I have not been out yet. I'm also kind of still letting this shoulder of mine, the blown AC joint, like I'm good with like more weeks of letting that sort of heal up before my first inevitable crash skiing. Especially early season at Crested Butte can be quite rocky. And that's like one of the (laughs) things we, you know, like you see the froth and we've talked about this and it's just like, I know it feels good to get that froth and go skiing, but like, man, this is like possibly one of the most dangerous parts of the season. I've had plenty of friends have season ending injuries on day one through five because it's low snow. So if, yeah, like you're saying, if it's not quite time, you got an injury, just chill out. I was kind of curious though, I mean, like, so you were riding chairlifts yesterday. Were you like, this is weird. I don't, I'm not like dragging a sled behind me or like bushwhacking. Like, or were you like, holy cow, maybe I'm just going to quit the 50 project. This is way more convenient. You know, it's like, I don't ski the resort that much anymore. And now it's amazing because I just like marvel. It's like being a kid going up a chairlift. Like, this is amazing. (laughs) You can just go up and it delivers you at the top of the mountain and you just go ski down again. It's amazing. So now I I still really enjoy resorts. Skiing and uh, yeah, I know. I did. There's a few days I saw a bunch of friends go out on tour, and I, although I wanted to get out there, uh, raising a baby right now was making my time limited, so uh, I wasn't get a chance to get out there. But and, I mean, early season, it feels good just to lap, you know. In many ways, like there's plenty of time. We're going to be ski touring here soon, so uh, so yeah. No, I, I had no plans to quit the 50, but sprinkling in some ski resort time really feels good for the soul. Well, I don't know if I can segue with like speaking of good for the soul or what how how would you segue in into our next topic here? What would you do? Yeah, I know. I was going to play off the 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 hope we were talking about and low expectations maybe because uh the segue was probably one of the most, you know, talked about things in the ski industry over this past month and it was the integration of or the introduction of the fast pass at numerous ski areas including Snowbird, Copper and Mount Bachelor. Um Essentially, what they're doing is that you can, on top of your either daily pick uh, ticket price or your season pass, 
upgrade for flexible pricing that is like almost like Uber like where, you know, at peak times on like a powder day, I'm imagining, or uh, a weekend, those prices might rise um, anywhere from $49 to $69, I think it is right now. You can get essentially premier access and go through a line that does not have a line. So you get on the chair faster. So it's been like the most talked about thing. And I think you and I just, yeah, we, we introduced it with a lack of hope and expectations and bad for the soul. So I don't know if we're going to have good things to say about this. Okay. I feel like this would be an easy topic to just be like, this is horrible and the worst thing ever and blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to, I've been frankly trying to figure out like, what's the other angle here that might be a bit less sort of predictable or so let me try this. You know, we did recently an episode or two ago of reviewing the news. We were talking about, you know, Patagonia's decision to not, you know, to pull out of certain shops in Jackson Hole, say. And we talked a lot in that conversation about the right of private companies basically to do whatever the hell they feel like doing. So let's, I, that, <laughs> this is my attempt. So on the one hand, it's like, yep, well, so if these ski areas, it, you know, they can do this. This is, this is, this is me trying to muster up the, the other side, I guess it's like they can do this, except that maybe I might have a counter to that in a second. It does just feel well shitty. Yeah, no. And I, that's my take too, is like they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. If this is something that they think is going to increase their bottom line, increase their business, then that's their right. You know, the one thing about it though, and what was interesting to me about this was Ron Wyden, the Oregon Senator, who then wrote a letter to Mount Bachelor specifically talking about public lands and National Forest Service. It was one of the first times I've ever seen a public political official bringing up the fact that like, hey, your leases are on public lands. Like it's kind of a little like like subtle message that like we could pull this away from you if you don't abide by some sort of metric that we want, that there should be some sort of access available to it. So that was pretty fascinating in my pain, in my mind, because like it's something I've thought about with politics is that ultimately public lands and the National Forest Service has all say when it comes to a lot of these ski areas. You know, Palisades Tahoe is mainly on private land, so they don't, but a majority of ski areas are on public land. And saying that this two-tiered system of access to public lands based on financial ability is antithetical to equity in the outdoors, that was, that was big. And it kind of goes against the like, oh, you're, these are private companies. They're like, well, they operate on public lands. Right. And that is the caveat to what the sort of argument or the position I was trying to at least articulate. And I, the same, like that kind of brought me pause and it was like, right, a two-tiered system of access to public lands. Yeah. Which the one thing, and again, on a little bit of other side is this has actually been happening for a lot longer than people think. Um, I think, you know, for one, 
there's a lot of scaries. You can hire a guide for the day um, and then you can get fast pass kind of exit. I've actually seen friends at, at Palisades Tahoe abuse that and like hire their buddy who happens to be a guide and just on a pow day get to cut line all day and they have to spend an extra 150 bucks, but they'll they would do that. Um, so um, I even saw um Vale saying like, yeah, we've already have this. It's with ski school. Um, Copper has actually had this fast pass access system for a long time as well. So this has been tested. This has gone through some sort of iteration of these, this kind of two tier system. But I think what this really signified, it was so widespread. It was without a ski, you know, ski school. It was without any sort of thing other than you have the cash we can solve the problem that we created being that the ski resort is way too busy these days. And with extra money, you can do this yourself. Um, you know, a lot of people are pointing out to Disney was, has done the same sort of thing at their theme parks. Um, and the, the main thing I say against the Disney, and this was brought up by Dave Amaro is that at Disney, you get a space mountain, whether you're there at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. Space mountain doesn't change. It's the same experience. You just had to wait in line for longer. Skiing, it changes real quick. If it's a powder day, two o'clock is going to be a lot worse than 10 o'clock. So all of a sudden you're creating an enjoyment factor based on your wealth. Like, hey, people that are wealthy get to enjoy skiing more than people that are not as wealthy. Um, the other thing that felt really bullshit about it is they sold all these season passes and then announced it. You know, like you're like, wait, what? Like all of a sudden you're creating this new tier of it um, after we sold all these passes. So yeah, to me, I mean, it's like this has been happening in quietly and weird sort of ways, but yeah, it just feels shitty. It feels like everything we've been talking about of more access to public lands, of trying to create more equality, of not making this sport even richer. They're just like, yeah, threw up a middle finger to that. And here, this is how you solve your problems of the, the ski area experience. Give us more money. That's kind of what it felt like. So a couple questions. One, I could not find in any of the articles I read a discussion about, well, this fast pass program generates X amount of revenue. Like, and cause I was interested in that. Like if there was going to be any kind of argument made of like, well, look, this will bring in 8% more revenue or 15% more revenue. And frankly, like that just helps cover operational expenses of running a ski area. I couldn't, I couldn't really find anything on the justification front? I did not see anything, but I think it's just all insinuated that it, like the justification is we will get more money. Just and I think, more. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people, it feels like just capitalistic growth. It's just like, hey, you grow. That's the point of capitalism. And so that's where I think people are such up in arms about it because there isn't like, hey, we're going to invest more on this. I put it out there of like, the only way to balance this out is allow for, you know, Another tier, not just two tiers, but there's a third tier that's for lower income, lower, you know, cheaper access. Like, if is that a way to do it? If, if to me that will happen, if that happens, then I think that's actually beneficial. You're like, hey, sure, wealthy people are get to go, oh, oh, you know, enjoy the ski area a little bit more. But you're like, but if you can provide more access to like local community, behind the scenes workers, like all that kind of, you know 
kids, students, which they already have that kind of stuff, but make it even cheaper because this is offsetting those costs, then then I think more people will be up uh, up for it. I do know Mount Bachelor did kind of put out a public statement that has actually been ongoing is that they do have a beginner chairlift that you can ride for free. So they kind of, I think they try to counter. Yeah. And you know, and that's cool. And, but I still think you're like, okay, we have one beginner chair that's free. What's then the next tier up to continue to allow people to ski? Because like, sure, you could go skiing and you're like, but to get on that chairlift over there is a thousand dollars and it's free. Like that's a big leap to make for a lot of people of going from renting a pair of skis and boots for 15 bucks and skiing for the first time to like, hey, I want to go up that next beginner chair. You're like, sorry, that's going to cost you either $169 for the day or, you know, $800 for a ski pass and another thousand for all your equipment. I have two questions for you on this. So one, I just, I want your personal opinion on this. You know, we have said, right, ski schools, right? When you're, you're seeing skis, ski school, usually kids coming through with instructors. Have you had a problem or do you have a problem with them kind of having their own line rolling up through getting on the lift? Generally not because it doesn't make it's not that big of an impact and you see it there like with a lesson, you know that like, you know, they're spending five hundred to a thousand dollars depending on what ski area they're at to go that and you're like, whatever. They're they're cutting through. It's not that big of a deal. I have seen the problem though when it is like friends of mine like Jim Morrison and Michelle and other friends rent their guide buddy on a on a, a powder day and then they'll get screamed at because everyone's like, What the hell are you guys doing? We all know you. Um, which has been kind of funny to see. That's just more comical as everyone's calling them out by name. So I'm I'm with you. Like I've never, it's just interesting to think through, like why have we never been like, oh, there's ski school again. We're not like yelling and booing at them. And I am a little worried, like the just people showing up this year, like sick. I just bought fast pass. Like how does it work for first chair? Like, and like, let's say you're at Snowbird waiting for first tram. Do you just all of a sudden get to show up? People are showing up at six in the morning to get first box. And then they're like, oh, no, like, we're just going to go to the front. We showed up at 855 and we're going to go to the front like that is going to be bad. I I, actually I want to say I don't think the tram was actually one of the lifts that was on there. But it's like still there's these like kind of questions. And I agree there could be some snowballs thrown in those instances because yeah you see kids with an instructor like whatever but you see like i don't know a guy in a bogner suit passing you by and he's getting another pow lap in you're gonna people are gonna be pissed off so here's one last thing on this thought experiment what if one of these ski areas that's running a fast pass deal said we're doing this and because we're doing this, we are now going to raise ski patrol salaries. We are using this as a new mechanism to raise ski patrol salaries. And I, I don't know by what percentage or, you know, but let's play with this for a second. Would you then be like, cool, I'm for it? Yes and no. I think that's one of those things where it's like, okay, it feels better uh, about it. It's, you know, it feels better, but you're also kind of, you're like, well, what were you guys profiting last year? Like 
could do, could you do this beforehand? Like it starts to bring up those questions. Like so many of these companies are either private, um, you know, obviously a lot of public companies like, like Vail or whatnot, you can sort of look into it and sort of know what their profits are. But like for a lot of ski areas, including most of the Altera ones, which isn't a part of FastPass, but it's like, how do you, how do we know how much Snowbird is profiting every year? Because if they're, you know, making a hundred mil or 10 mil or whatever, and you're like, you guys could have paid for that without this. So it just brings up some more questions. I think it feels better, but like you, you'd want to know more and they should be more transparent about it. Yeah. But I think at a minimum, what we could say is it is, I mean, there's been a backlash on this, right? And it is interesting to me why some of these companies couldn't have foreseen that and then done this like, look, this is happening, but we are also doing it as you've proposed. Either there there will be funding from this, whether it is to raise the salaries of certain ski area employees or create a new lower income program or something. And so, I mean, either the answer is they just didn't care or somebody messed up in thinking about like not just the optics, but like what we could actually do that might be meaningful. It reeks of the like a C-suite not paying attention to what's going on in the ski industry. What is the the problems and the, the uh, of skiers at ski resorts? What is what is their experience like? To to me, like like one of the biggest issues that we see anywhere right now is traffic. You're like, well. They're not dealing with it by other than just like paid parking or now a lot of places have to get reservations for parking, which was a hassle in itself and created a lot of up or so why don't you say, okay, like people show up and four people in a car, you guys can all get fast pass. Like, why don't you incentivize something like that? Why don't you use it instead of this financial incentivization? You make it so that you relieve the problems that people are feeling at ski areas. Like these are the things where you just, it kind of reeks of like completely out of touch with the everyday skier. Moving on. Any final thoughts? Do you have any hopes that there might be some tweaking of these programs that would make them more palatable? That I mean, stuff like, like what I just said, but like, you know, if you show up in a carpool, then you can get a fast pass or some other sort of bonus. Some like that would make this feel better. Um, I, the thing is, all the uproar hasn't done anything. They're, they're moving forward with it. So so we'll see. We'll see what, what it's like and what the feedback is from the, the season. It could be we could be talking much ado about nothing. It could be like, yeah, five people got it today and it's not raising revenue, but it managed to piss everybody off. So in that regard, you're like, oh, well, that was a, that was a loss. Um, or, you know, it could be this thing where like a hundred people are in line and the fast pass are going right through and everyone else is waiting and people are going to be pissed. Um, so more than anything, it was just, it was a bad look. And I don't, I don't think it feels good as a skier in a ski community, watch, watch it happen. But um, moving on to something that kind of feels a little good and bad. Um, and I think we we talk about this a lot and we talk about climate change. And I think one of the biggest news right now is the, you know, not only the BIF, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but also the BBB, the Build Back Better. So the two in conjunction. Um, and a lot of the talk about it has to be with climate change because it was what Biden campaigned a, a lot on. Um and as anyone that follows the news, probably the the name Joe Manchin and Kristen Semina are just in your head at all times because 
Joe Manchin, a guy who owns a coal plant, is peeling back layer after layer of climate change bills. And I would say the major news has shown it to be it's really negative, like Democrats are absolutely failing. Um, I dug in a little bit to the bill as it's been started to release. And I will say there's actually some cool stuff in there. And that was kind of what I wanted to talk about and and point out. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess I'll just I'll pull up a, a few of the things like, yeah, sure. A lot of us that are, you know, activists for climate change that want to see something happen, which is a majority of the population of America now, it's like somewhere around 63% believe that climate change is a serious issue and we need to do something about it. Yet one guy in West Virginia is completely bull blocking it. But things like in there actually making in the bill like uh, Anwar, um, Drilling in Anwar, they're permanently closing that off, which is amazing because that's been a fight for so long. Um, they're also pulling, they're canceling all outer continental shelf oil and gas leases. So all of essentially the, the entire Atlantic, Pacific Coast and Eastern Gulf of Mexico, they're permanently banning new, any new offshore oil and gas leases. So that, that's pretty big. Like those are big fights that climate change activists have been fighting for a long time and that happened to make it in there. Um, they're eliminating non-competitive leasing, which is this, it's this weird thing where Essentially, like if no one bids on a piece of land um, that they want to use for mineral rights for oil and gas rights, they uh, a company can kind of just sweep it up for like a dollar and then get the get the lease and do whatever they want with it. And it's this weird loophole in land laws and they're eliminating that loophole. So really good because oil companies have utilized that kind of loophole in the law to swipe up more and more land for oil and gas rights. Um, they're giving a lot of funding for offshore wind developments, which is really, really huge. Um, there, there's even some small stuff like they're putting a ton of money for the postal service to uh, completely electrify their entire uh, fleet of cars. With that too, electrifying a grid so that there's more ability to charge electric cars. Um, you know, most people I think are talking about, obviously there's, um, uh, home energy and efficiency tax credits. So solar panels and stuff, which is huge because we've been seeing those fluctuate state to state, um, electric electrification focus rebate programs and credits up to $1,250 for us made union made electrical vehicles. So while, we're all disappointed in that it's not as big as it needs to be. Um, there's still some cool stuff in there. So that was kind of what I wanted to make sure is addressed because I don't think it is being talked about quite as much that it's just, it feels all super, super bad. Yet there still is some good stuff in there. I don't know. I have been tempted, you know, been thinking about what exactly I kind of wanted to say about some of this in this conversation. And while it is, you know, always going to be frustrating if it feels like there is perhaps an individual that is just sort of being obstructionist. I don't think anybody is happy when it feels like, wow, that feels more obstructionist than like, I just am on the other side. It Like I, I feel passionately about a certain position, but the thing I want to come back to, and again, this might be, it, it might be tone deaf. I don't know. Maybe it's important reminder. We have talked about this a little bit before. I think it is important to remember because our 
our political parties in this country don't really help us to remember this. Democracies are about consensus and consensus building. I just want to say this again. If you are on the side of, if I don't get every last thing exactly the way I want it to be, I'm going to yell and complain, then you don't believe in democracy. We have to build consensus, which inherently means I will maybe never get exactly everything I want or, you know, what I want to the 100th percentile, right? And so I did see when I saw some of the first reactions about this um, from some folks in like, you know, just climate activists, environmental activists, it was like, boo. <laughs> and I was like, wait a sec, let's do a closer examination. And I, I know we didn't get, say, every last thing we'd want, but I just think like, I, I don't know, in this day of the last decade or so in America, I'm like, we kind of need to remember, it's like, if we didn't get what we wanted, maybe this isn't 100% true in this particular case. But if we didn't get exactly what we wanted, well, then the blame is on us for not having presented more of a compelling case for the consensus, right? We have to accept that to some extent. Thoughts? <laughs> are you like, dude, what are you t talking about here? No, I agree. And it's just, but the, the hard part with the consensus is that you're fighting essentially a whole party that's like, no, do nothing. No, we won't want to do anything like I'm not even seeing any proposals, whether they're like capitalist based, conservative valued based that like, you know, let's do it in this way. And in that regard, I'd be like, cool, like let's, we're coming up with sol solutions, not just obstruction. And I think that's where it's hard is like you see someone like Joe Manchin, who literally owns a coal plant, one of the dirtiest style of coal plants there is, who has received more money from oil and gas than any other politician, pretty much stopping any big, big movements. And like, if it was on the other side being like, hey, like, no, we don't want this, but we want this because we think incentives are better than regulation, then be like, well, let's, let's go with that. Let's make some consensus. And that's the biggest thing is it feels fundamentally broken because you have essentially a party that's not wanting you to do anything at all. And I can't say the Democrats' proposals are amazing by any means. And, you know, there's some flaws for sure enough, but it's like, at least we're trying to do something. And, you know, like this is such an existential crisis that we have to do something or we're going to be paying out the ass for a long time, not only in just suffering costs, but literally economic costs are going to be through the roof because of it. We're already seeing it now. I forget what the like FEMA's budget and the trillions that we're spending because of environmental disasters that are only predicted to get worse. So that's where it's hard to be like, how do we build consensus off? Like, not like, yes, but then one party kind of want is willing to budge and then just straight up. No, there, there's nothing. Um, you know, like there's this guy I've kind of gotten to meet and know for a little bit. His name's Benji backer. Um, he started this thing called the AAC or ACC. I forget, but he's essentially a climate activist that is a Republican and he's a conservative and he's out there trying to convince other Republicans to do things for climate. And I think he's got like 
I don't agree with some of his ways that he wants to do stuff, but I back him because what he's doing is like, look, we want to do it in this way. And that's we're doing something as opposed to nothing and something like so that's the biggest thing to it is like I I wish people with and the Republican Party would listen to someone like Benji more and they would come up with proposals because then I think we're we're more game for him. Um, but again, I guess this is also too why I wanted to say what was in the actual bill to not to dissuade the full fire of like this is terrible. The world is going to burn up like there's some cool, good things in there. And yeah, as if you if you follow the science, you know, it's not fast enough and big enough. But hell, it's freaking something. <laughs> Where to? Okay, where are we going next? Um, oh, more environmental stuff. Um, this has been a big topic on social media and uh, over the past few weeks. Um, and it's about these bighorn sheep terrain closures in the Tetons. And there's been a lot of pretty angry and like loud voices from pretty respected people within the community. Uh, I've seen a lot of guides in the Tetons really speaking out about it. A lot of the heavy backcountry users speak up about it. And what it is, is essentially the National Park and National Forest Service uh, listened to the recommendation of biologists saying that a lot of what is typically pretty popular ski terrain to be shut down to allow for space for the two last remaining big horde sheep uh, herds in the Tetons. And um, it's, yeah, there's been a lot of anger, a lot of, uh, I don't know, questioning of it. I'm seeing just loud voices. So it seems like a good topic to kind of talk about. And I think we should say Hadley Hammer wrote a piece about this that you and I both just thought was incredibly well done and smart and shout out to Hadley. We'll, we'll put a link to Hadley's piece um, because I think she really kind of gets at the heart of kind of the issue, but like, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah. And so this is, I kind of had some, some friends of mine ask me to speak up and share and share some of the, the links to the community meetings and, you know, say my thoughts that this is bad for skiers and whatnot. And I kind of felt a little like, I was actually pretty reserved because I'm like, I actually don't know much about the subject. And I don't want to just like champion something I don't want to, uh, you know, that I don't know a ton about. So um, I would say Hadley wrote up probably the best piece about it and kind of end up where I align, which might anger a few of my friends. And her thoughts were that, you know, we're trying to live in like, in like synchronization with uh, the you know wildlife we we if we as skiers value backcountry skiing and backcountry and its wild environments that we go into doesn't that mean we kind of have to potentially sacrifice a little bit to make it so that these places stay wild and having bighorn sheep is a part of that um and she does a really really good job of kind of uh Showing where she's living now, she's living in Austria. She grew up in the Tetons and the difference in backcountry terrain and wildlife. And when you're in Europe, nothing really feels pretty wild about it. You ski off the backside of any ski area, you could probably end up in a village and find another ski, you know, ski lift. Or, you know, you just, you kind of are pretty close to civilization at all times. And she was saying like how growing up in the Tetons, like that's what she loves about it so much is you go out there, you're truly, truly in the wild. And that we as, as skiers shouldn't take this place as our own domain if we're, 
valuing it specifically because it is wild. Like this is something it's not just human use these places are for. They're for everything. And she does a really good job of kind of illustrating illustrating that. Um, you know, the one thing I will say she also illustrated in my thoughts too is like, it is interesting because I think the anger comes from a lot like Jackson Hole is an incredibly difficult place to live. It is wildly expensive. It is incredibly hard to find housing. Um, it is beyond crowded town, like 300 days a year. There's such bad traffic. It's just like crowded. And for a lot of skiers, the only refuge and solace is getting out into the Tetons, getting away from people and enjoying that. And for the closures to affect that just makes it feel like like even harder. And I do sympathize with the guides that make their living off of taking people into these mountains. And all of a sudden they're, you know, very popular terrain, very well-traveled terrain is shut down. That's going to make their jobs and everything else that they have to deal with of living in place like Jackson, that much more difficult. So as much as I like, I agree with her, it's like, you know what, like, let's listen to the biologists on this one. If they think this is going to be good for them, then it's probably good and we should learn to share these spaces. I still do sympathize with with the skiers because at the same time, you're like, why are the skiers taking the brunt of this? Is you know, is there something we can do with the roads? Is there something we can do with the meadows? Because the histories of these sheep is they actually used to winter down in the valley, not at 10,000 feet. And we're closing terrain at 10,000 feet because our civilization has forced them there. And so that's where you're kind of like, couldn't there be some other solutions? Um, that was kind of, you know, one of the things I will say, and again, just read Hadley's piece. She does a great job. Um, that's what, I, that's what I'll say about it. And there was another portion in the piece where it's like, okay, you were saying, let's listen to the biologist. Yes. But let's like actually follow up what what are we finding? What did we learn? And there, she is talking a bit about sometimes we're not so great on the follow up, right? And so there's a new there's a new protocol or restriction put in place, and and I was like, that's a great point. Like if we're gonna do this stuff, let's make sure that we're like we can measure the efficacy of it. And if it's like this didn't have an impact, or you know. It just seems like this is the right time to, once again, it's been a common theme in our conversations, like let's talk to experts, let's all try to get as informed as, as possible, and then let's actually test some stuff and try to be nimble and responsive appropriately. But I thought that was interesting if it was like, yo, we're going to shut some areas down and then it's prob whether it's effective or not, it's just shut down sort of indefinitely. Yeah, I understand people that would be like, nah, -uh, that doesn't sound right. Totally. And I, you know, and that's a hard thing. Government quite often, like I always talked about like right when you remember the tariffs that Trump and, uh, put on Chinese imports. And as a business owner, I remember the immediately thinking like these are never going away and they're not. The, the Biden administration has continued with them. It is hard to turn things back around once they've started. And closures like this are hard to reopen back up. So I agree there. I, I hope, I wish there's some sort of plan to really measure the efficacy of this and to, to see, is this working? Do we see the herd grow? Then 
you know what, we're going to have to share the space a little bit more. Um, I would also like to see, yeah, maybe there's some other plans for down in the valley. And I don't know what that looks look like. So um, I think it came up on a lot of skiers really quickly. Um, I don't think there was much input by, by skiers in general. Um, but I do don't think this this topic is going away because it says there's going to be a generation of skiers that are going to remember this for a long time. So um, I will say too, there is modern society has a pretty bad track record of wildlife management. There is <laughs> countless instances. Um, me as a fisher, I don't really fish anymore, but I just remember listening to the stories of like fish management and just how poorly that's been executed in the U.S. by uh, modern society for the last hundred years. And you, you know, you always hear the stories of like Australia when they were like, "Oh, we wanted to get rid of this bug, so we introduced right. this frog, and right. then this frog came in, and it's just like overpopulated." We do yes. have a pretty bad track record of wildlife management. I would give them the benefit of the doubt that we've maybe learned from these mistakes and these experts are doing better with it but i would i would love to see some follow-up on it um and in the meantime like yeah it's gonna be a bummer this year for for a lot of those gears but this is i mean in order to kind of have the wild lands i think this is part of the sacrifice that we have to make as as humans that we should share them to be continued definitely so yeah again just read hadley's piece she does a great job at it yeah, shout out and kudos, Hadley, for a very thoughtful and well-written piece. Next, we're going to talk about a friend of yours and the person who I have often called my favorite skier, in part because she's an unbelievable skier, but also in part because she's a philosophy major. We got to stick together. Uh, Angel Collinson, uh, recently, like a few days ago, announced her retirement from skiing cody thoughts um yeah no this was angel kind of put out this video just i think it was yesterday the day before kind of from a boat that she's kind of renovated with her boyfriend and has uh, sailed across the atlantic um talking about her kind of exit from being a professional skier and moving on to new things and you know this is something i've been i've known angel for a long time we've done trips together we've uh you know, connected in many different ways, had a lot of really good talks. She's a really smart, articulate, interesting person. Um, this is something I've known for a long time. A lot of her close friends have known she's been kind of wanting to get away from skiing for a long time. So I was personally waiting for that announcement. And um, I think it was really interesting because I don't know if I've ever seen a professional skier. It's like the kind of the peak of their career, like right in the strong point, publicly announced they're just stepping away. Like, I would say, if anything, most pro skiers just try and milk it quietly for as long as possible. But her suggests being like, no, I'm stepping away. Um, it was pretty, pretty powerful statement. I haven't seen, like I said, anything quite like that. Um, and, you know, knowing some, I don't want to speak too much for her, but, you know, like knowing the some of the pressures that you do have as a professional skier, some of the risk that you continually have to, to have that if you don't feel a hundred percent and fully driven, then it is a really, really risky sport to continue with. Um, it is something that like, if you have a smidgen of hesitation or like just kind of like microscopic amount of like not wanting to be there, that to me is like one of the most dangerous things you can do as a professional skier. Um, I've seen that personally kind of in my own career that if your head's not on perfectly and you're full, you, you 
you need to step up, but you're not quite there. Like you put yourself in pretty, pretty high chances that something's going to go wrong. So I thought it was pretty powerful of her. Um, I thought it signified what uh, we're seeing a lot in sports. So this kind of athlete empowerment, um, these, you know, you see the NBA and the NFL right now, people switching teams because they just don't want to be there for whatever reason. Um, They want to do something different. They want to express themselves in some different way. And that was kind of one of the first times I feel like it's come to come to skiing. And I'm curious, I mean, on the one hand, you know, Angel is Angel, and you've already said she is super smart and thoughtful and incredibly reflective. So, you know, I I want to be careful here. She's very much her own person. But I am curious, like, do you actually suspect this might represent something like a first step in skiing where we hear more from athletes saying like, I am taking a step back for, for some of the reasons you've just said, like, I'm not comfortable with the risk level, um, so on and so forth. If you actually had to like, look into your crystal ball. I think it's been a slow time coming. Like I even think about actually in my own career, like, uh, there was the Matt Hansen piece, um, in powder magazine a few years ago that we talked about just like, why are all the best skiers dying? And I was pretty public about talking about my own after I skied the crack, after I kind of felt like I did everything in my professional free ride career that I wanted to do, like watching my friends die around me really shaped that I just didn't feel comfortable with that risk and pushing it to the next level. There was like only one way to go after I skied the crack and that's progressing upon that, doing something gnarlier than that. That was what is expected of you as a professional skier, stepping it up year to year. And I was, I was pretty public a bit. Like I just, I couldn't foresee myself taking more risk than I was already taking um, in that space. So I think, I wasn't the first one. I think there's other people that have been talking about it. Um, the the thing I did is like, I truly skiing is like kind of the only thing I want to do, but I just looked a different way. I know Angel, again, I don't want to totally speak for her, but I know she wanted to look outside of the sport. She wanted to find something totally different. She She had this desire to look beyond skiing because for her, skiing really kind of wrapped up her whole entire life from her birth to her career was been about skiing. So I know that drove her a little bit. So I think we're seeing it more and more of just, there's this, you know, that's a little bit more comfort with talking about real issues among people that are in the public sphere. Um, so that, that's, I don't think we're going to see more people quit, but I think we we'll, might see more people talking about their own pressures, maybe talking about like the realities of the job at times. Like it's a dream job. Don't get me wrong. Like so many people would switch places with me, but I always kind of have to emphasize to certain people that like still a job and there's still pressures and we do put our life on the line and it is at times can be overwhelming. And I, if you say that publicly, quite often people think you're whining and you're complaining about your job and that you're like, F you like would rather sit in a desk and you're like, no, no, I, I, I love this, but I'm just saying like, we show you all the good moments. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it and it's not cut out for everyone. And sometimes those pressures can lead to things that you didn't expect, whether that's, you know, mental health issues or that's wanting to exit the exit the sport entirely. So, um, you know, I kind of want to actually tell a story about with the risk too. So 
my last year filming with MSP and some of this like headspace that you can kind of, I was really just mailing it in. I was already really deep in on my mind on the 50. Uh, this was 2018. And I remember like stepping up to these lines. I was filming with Elise. I was filming with Angel. I was filming with Michelle for MSP movies, uh, the all in. And I remember just having like no fear, not in the good way. Like literally I just wasn't paying attention to things. And I skied this line where I looked up at it. And I was like, okay, I just come down three turns, hit that cliff. Cool. And it was that kind of relaxed sort of like, I've been doing this for 15 years. This is what I do. Just mailing it in. And I remember going off this cliff and going off at the wrong angle and just narrowly, absolutely barely narrowly missing this ice wall from this ice fall that had come down. And I couldn't, I didn't scout it well enough that this ice wall stuck up and I like hit my heels on this ice wall and exploded. If I had been going a half mile an hour slower, I would have slammed it into that ice wall, probably broken both legs and been in a really, really bad spot. And that came from not having fear that came from not being my head in the game. And that was actually, I said it to Elise that day. I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm the only thing I need to do now is the 50. I'm, I, I quit. And it was in my own way, kind of pulling like an angel that she did. I'm saying within the sport, but it was just this knowledge that like, dude, if your head is not in the game for this sport, like you, you can kill yourself pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, that's why I do, like, that's why I applauded her. I'm like, dude, this, it takes a lot of guts to go out there and just move away from this, this dream job and this sport. So, um, for me as a friend of hers, I'm, I'm proud of her. Well, I'm going to reach out to Angel. I wanted to like not do that immediately after. And I'm just going to say, Hey, if you, you know, if you'd like to say anything further than what you've already said, come on and let's talk, you know, on, on this on this podcast. And, and if she has said what she has to say, good, all good and more power to you. And we certainly wish you all the best. Totally. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be interested in following what she's going to do because she's smart. She's driven. She's a uniquely curious person. So it'll be cool. To, cool to see what she does outside of the sport. Hey, Cody, you want to know why she's uniquely curious? Why? Cause she's a philosophy major. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> hey I, I mean us linguistics majors are really right. really hamming it up in the world these days so can't really speak too much <laughs> where are we going next um you know maybe we should you know i was gonna go into this thing about the american alpine journal now including ski descents do one minute on it um it's actually if I'm a member of American Alcon Club. It's a really cool thing. It's actually gets you a lot of access to huts, gets around the world. There's some really cool benefits. I I definitely um, suggest people join it if you're a backcountry skier. And what's most interesting about it, it's been uniquely situated around climbing, mountaineering, big adventures. And they put out books, both an accident journal, which I always am really fascinated with reading what's happening in climbing. They do do avalanche accidents as well. Um, and then they also put out a book of like the world's most significant long climbs. They're now starting to put ski descents in there, um, which is pretty cool because I think it's showing this shift in mountaineering and the importance of people that go up there with a pair of skis and come down are becoming pretty prominent in mountaineering spaces. So that was like, I, if you're a kind of climbing nerd and mountaineering nerd, like I am, like it's a pretty big step. They've had some, some skiing in the past, but now they're being very, very like 
vocal about like we're going to from now on put ski descents in there if they meet the criteria of you know significant long climbs and skis um i know hillary nelson is a big part of that she's doing a lot of work with it so um pretty pretty cool to see as a as a climbing and mountaineering nerd that ski mountaineering is getting on the same foot as old school expeditions (laughs) (laughs) excellent Let's talk a little bit about what we have been reading and watching. Have you been reading and watching anything given that you are, as we've said, you got to keep indie alive at the moment? Yeah, not watching too much. It started, I've been reading because I just lay there at three in the morning while he's feeding and I'm kind of awake. So I started reading this book that was recommended to me by Len Nessifer, um, the the Dr. Len Nessifer, who's uh, the CEO of Native Outdoors. It's called The Other Slavery by Andres Resendez. Um, really fascinating book. Just going into what we typically think of uh, colonial slavery of black slavery and this is more related to indigenous slavery and it just uh just it's a history book it's kind of reminds me of like you know howard zinn's the people's history of the united states just looking at uh north american history and mexican history from a different lens and the history of of slavery that is much larger than kind of our very concentrated view of it in america so Really fascinating read if you're into history and you're into North American history. That's all I say. Otherwise, uh, I, I see you got Squid Game on there. I watched the first episode. What, what have you been thinking? I actually finished it. I mean, it was such a phenomenon. I totally. kind of sometimes when it, something catches fire like that, it's like, all right, let me let me see what what's going on here. And uh, well, the, the Queen's Gambit was such a fire, and that was like cool. Like it was huge, and I jumped on that, and uh, much to your suggestion too, and it was um unbelievable so i jumped in on one episode too because of the same kind of feels like a cultural touch point right now what did you say yeah i mean first of all in my humble and very personal opinion this is no queen's gambit queen's gambit is just next level best thing of all time i'm I'm just i'm the i'm so high on it so i think part of the interest in squid game is that it is caught on as a cultural thing. Whereas when I saw Queen's Gambit, I didn't really know if anybody was watching it. Kind of just incredible in its own right. I don't know what I think. I'm not willing to tell the world everybody needs to watch the Squid Game. I think it is interesting for sure in certain respects. Part of me thinks what is interesting about it is actually external to the show itself, which is... I and I would love to see this that look for I think a lot of years and forgive me here if I if if I if people think I'm getting this somewhat wrong Americans don't watch a lot of subtitled shows we make the shit that we then make the rest of the world watch in subtitles and I kind of love the popularity of Squid Game if this helps to encourage studios perhaps where like let's see more of this let's see things that were made in all different parts of the world let's let's happily do the subtitled and voiceover thing i just think that's going to make for a far more interesting like cultural experience because i do think for maybe this is already the tide is turned here a bit but i think the squid game might accelerate this where we are seeing more stuff produced in korea or turkey or wherever in the world if this helps the mainstreaming of that kind of content 
I'm here for that for sure. I agree. Uh, like that's I'm in the same boat. Like it used to be like if you watch foreign films, you're just like, oh, you're a nerd or whatnot. And yeah. you're like, no, there's a like we're instead of sourcing from just North America's best right. creative minds, we're sourcing the world's best creative minds. And it's really like I used to watch a lot of French films because they just have something totally different about it. And like I point to like Money Heist is one of the best like fun shows to watch but it's subtitled so it doesn't catch on quite as much so if that does mean things are going to catch on this foreign that's that's great um i've watched the first episode i can't say i was totally hooked by it i i was kind of i was definitely a little like Ooh, okay it's just very violent and kind of know what's going to happen but I, i'll probably finish it at some point but i can't say i was like oh my god i gotta watch this kind of like we we both did with uh, the queen's gambit what I mostly want to talk about, though, and I, I, this will provide, I promise, zero, zero spoiler alerts here. You and I have been talking quite a bit about Succession, mostly because you've been sort of getting into it. Man, the last episode of Succession, which was this third season, the second episode, this is the best written thing maybe I've ever seen in t all of television. Wild. I mean, the acting was fantastic, but the writing, I was like, this is the highest level writing I have seen in a TV show, literally maybe ever. And it's not to say, I mean, there's other, been other great stuff out there, but like, I was completely blown away. I haven't gone back, like, in a, you know, I, I haven't had the time to like kind of start over, you know, episode one, season one to kind of track back. Um, but I was just like, this is next level writing and um, I'm still kind of a sucker for that kind of thing. So where, where are you? I can say I'm starting back at, at episode one. I've watched the first episode of season three. I snuck it in, but I'm watching season one starting again. Cause I'm getting a lease into it because I was like, you like, you just got to watch this. Have it's to. so yeah. good. So, yeah. and I'm like, I am fully down to watch it again. And it's been cool to watch it. So we're through the first three episodes. We don't watch a ton of TV, so it's hard to, you know, we kind of do it every once in a while, but I'm just like, just get through these first four. They're kind of, do you kind of see like, I felt like the first four episodes, they were like kind of, they didn't quite have the feel for the characters and they were almost caricatures of themselves. And then they really get into their form after episode four. Or so, uh, but I think after episode three, she already kind of started to see it. And because I agree, like there's some moments in this, I've thought already that this is the best writing in TV I've ever seen. And I think like people don't talk about, but like Jeremy strong who plays Kendall, like he's one of the best actors around. Like you don't even know, how good of an actor he is because he's playing the part so, so perfectly. Like, that's where I'm like, I'm watching again. I'm like, these subtle things he does. I'm like, he is a brilliant actor. And it's, I always like watching people that are amazing at their craft. And that's where I think Secession does a great job of highlighting really good writing and really good acting. So um, it's, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm doing the rewatch, trying to get Elise caught up uh, when I, you know, if she leaves for an hour, then I'll probably watch sneak in episode two. <laughs> you have, so you have not watched yet episode two of no. season three. No, okay. I haven't. So I just watched season, episode one. So of uh, season three. So, um, but yeah, I'm going to, I'll get it. I'll sneak it in there at some point while I, catch Elise up on on it by the way i want to give it a shout out literally just before uh we started recording this 
I was actually my good friend, Sid Dickinson. She and I went over to the Crested Butte Center for the Arts and watched a Harold Pinter play. They put on The Dumb Waiter. It was kind of a, more of a dramatic reading of it. And it was freaking unbelievable. Like, it was so good. And, I, you know, again, I've kind of been busy doing this blister thing. And so, like, I'm not running off to see short plays, like, ever, to be honest. It was fantastic. It was this incredibly beautiful day here in Crested Butte. And we rolled into the new CB Center for the Arts building and watched these two incredibly talented actors roll through Pinter's The Dumbwaiter. And this is not a typical day for me in CB. And it was just everything about it was completely top shelf. And um, man, when you get to live in a super beautiful place and there's like an amazing production like that from a Nobel Prize winning playwright, I'm like, okay, all, all the good things of the world are kind of colliding at the moment here. So shout out, wonderful job, CB Center for the Arts. So, yeah, I might just leave it at that. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on on this end? No. Uh, yeah, reading blogs to try and figure out why my baby's screaming is the main thing I'm reading <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got all the baby books, I feel like, in in me. But you still, you're like, wait, what? is there a better technique to burping him right now than what I'm using? So that's where I mainly focus on. So other than what I've already said, not too much else in, in my world. Well, hey, man, as always, it is fun going through this stuff with you. And um, yeah, I wish you and Elise all the best. But man, find yourself a moment. Watch watch episode two, season three, Secession. You got, because I'm curious if you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or if you're like, on my same page, I'll be I'll be curious. I might judge you though. No, I'll probably be, but we'll be on the same page. We're both like super fans of Secession. So I don't think I, I'll uh, dif- disagree with you. So I'll go sneak it in when, I don't know, Lee's taking a nap or something. I'll put it on my iPad. Well, hey man, take good care of yourself. Say hi to Elise, say hi to Indy. We'll talk to you real soon. Sounds good. That was a good one, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this episode of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. And also, I should say congratulations to Cody because I am recording this outro on Sunday after his 49ers did beat my Bears. We actually texted through like the whole game and he was very civil about the whole thing. So I appreciate that. He's, he's, a, he's a good sport. Anyway, thank you, Cody. And thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on our Off the Couch podcast, our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and on our Gear 30 podcast. So subscribe to those shows wherever you get your podcasts, and we will catch you over there. All right. Take care, everybody.